0: lectionary reading for this Sunday comes from the book of Acts. It's Luke part two. Luke wrote a history of Christian beginnings. We call the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts or Acts of the Apostles. Really, it's the acts of, of God, the Holy Spirit through the early church. And so we're in chapter 17. Paul is going on his second missionary journey. He's returning to some of the churches that he started and he's going back to see how they're doing uh, in, in uh, Asia Minor and then in Macedonia and Greece. And eventually he ends up in Athens. And so we pick up his story here. Um, Paul is, it's, this is the word of the Lord from the 17th chapter of, of Acts. Paul waited in Athens for Silas and for Timothy, and he discussed with the Jews and other like-minded people at their meeting place and every day he went out on the streets, and he talked with anyone who happened along. And let me say now that I'm speaking from the message translation, which you will understand in a a few minutes. He got to know some of the Epicurean and Stoic intellectuals pretty well through these conversations, and some of them dismissed him with sarcasm. What an airhead. But others, listening to him go on about Jesus and the resurrection, were intrigued. There's a new slant on the gods. Tell us more. These people got together and asked Paul to make a public presentation over at the Areopagus, Mars Hill, where things would be a little quieter. They said, this is a new one. We've never heard anything like it. We don't know where you've gotten this, but we want you to explain it so we can understand. Athens was a great place for this kind of conversation. There were always people hanging around, natives and tourists alike, waiting for the latest new idea. So Paul took his stand in the open space at the Areopagus and laid it out for them. He said, "'It's plain that you Athenians take your religion seriously. When I arrived the other day, I was fascinated by all of the shrines I came across.' And then I found one inscribed, to the God nobody knows. I'm here to introduce you to this God so that you can worship intelligently and know who you're talking and who who you're dealing with. The God who made the world and everything in it, this master of sky and land, doesn't live in custom-made shrines or need the human race, to run errands for him as if he couldn't take care of himself. God made creatures, and creatures didn't make God. Starting from scratch, God created the whole human race and made the earth hospitable with plenty of time and space for living so that we could seek God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find God. God doesn't play hide-and-seek with us, God's not remote. God is near us. In fact, we live and move in him and can't get away from him. As one of your poets said, we're God created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh, President Trump's upcoming trip to the Middle East got me thinking about another president's encounter with a Middle Eastern leader. Back in 2002, George W. Bush uh, met with the Crown Prince Abdullah of Saudi Arabia at his Texas White House. And uh, it was reported that Abdullah told the president he relies on God to make tough decisions. And then the president said that he prays to God to guide him as well. And so it raises the eternal question of the relationship between religions that claim to be the the one right way how can one religion be more true or exclusively true with all of its own cultural history symbols and institutions is our god the only god the only right way or are all the others counterfeit some would say that god doesn't hear the prayers of anyone but certain People, Christians, pers- perhaps. Martin Marty, a, uh, a uh, historical scholar of the church, has said that uh, the, the, uh, the Bible that was read by the early Christians in much of the world, the Arabic world, in Egypt and in Asia Minor and so forth, was a Bible that was written in the Arabic language. And so their Genesis 1 would begin... In the beginning, Allah created heaven and earth. Allah is the Arabic word for God. And so in the Old and New Testaments, they're replete with the word Allah. So whether you are Jewish, a Jewish Christian, or a Muslim, if you are Arabic, you pray to Allah. And so, who's really listening there? Are there three different Allahs? Is it the same God that is being prayed to by these various faiths that use the same name? The question's obviously not just an academic one. We live in a diverse culture, our own country, and all of Western Christendom has become a very culturally diverse. Uh, we, we know that uh, with immigration and, and just with the globalization that, that we live in a time when we're encountering other religions. All of us probably have relationships with people who have some other religion, whether uh, Eastern or Middle Eastern or whatever. You know, there are now more Muslims in the United States than Episcopalians or Presbyterians. More, uh, more Muslims than there are Jews. Um, And and so, uh, we live in a different world. And the world obviously radically changed in 2001, September 11th. And since we've been fighting long wars, and many people have justified those wars on religious grounds, on both sides. The hatred and the violence. Some, on the extreme, have used their own Understanding of religion to to justify the hate. Someone wrote on a wall in Washington, D.C. shortly after 9 11 Dear God, save us from the people who believe in you. So, we as members of Riverside, we are called to be people who are ambassadors of reconciliation. We say that we want to be a church that is building bridges or making connections, overcoming barriers in the name of Christ. And But we're in this new time in which it is so critical to understand the relationship of our faith with the faith of others. The Apostle Paul, in about 55 A.D., went to Rome and was immersed in a, a foreign culture with its own religions. The people of that time, Athens was beyond its glory days, but it was still an important city, and it was full of different ideas, and, and uh, they, there were the, the Epicureans there who believed in a God who, who, who created, but then sort of disappeared, and so people are on their own, and whatever happens in life is pretty much random, And so with the randomness and insecurity of life, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. And then there were the Stoics who believed something pretty much opposite, which is it's all laid out ahead of time. It's your fate, and so your job as a person of faith is just to to submit to your fate. Uh, So there's Paul in this milieu with all of these gods and now the religion of of the Greeks at this time um, worshiping all of these Roman gods it there would be multiple idols all of these different idols with they believed in one creator god but all these intermediary gods below and so it wasn't as if they really chose a faith. It wasn't as if they trusted these gods. It was more like a cultural, um, just acceding to the culture they grew up in. It was going with the rituals of their community. Their gods were local. They were inherited from tradition. And how dare you go against the tradition? You, you, uh, you uh, absorb it. You endorse it. It's not a matter of conscious belief. It's really a matter of customary behavior. And so these gods are venerated, and then uh, Paul comes along and says, you know, but there is this unknown god that you refer to, uh, and maybe there's some common ground here uh, so that we can talk. Paul starts to engage the Athenians. He says, you know, uh, the idea that there is a God who, uh, in whom we live and move and have our being, you know, that's a wonderful phrase. In fact, I used to have a little thing in my office that had that phrase. But you know, it's not even a Christian phrase. It was, it was written by Epimedes, in Crete, six centuries before Christ. Paul was just quoting the Athenian philosophers. We too are his offspring, Paul said. Again, quoting an ancient philosopher, Eretus. So Paul is using the language and the symbols of the culture that he has come to. He is connecting with the people there by trying to use language that they understand, finding common ground, talking about one God, creator of all, who is over all and in us all, who is nearer to us than we could imagine, Paul says. And he adopts the language in whom we live and move and have our being. Notice he, there is no mention of Yahweh or, or Allah, No mention of Abraham or Moses, of Jesus. He's making a connection with people who have this long tradition, who value their past very highly. And here comes this new idea with no tradition, according to the Athenians. It's like, this is just a brand new idea. And Paul is trying to connect with these people. doesn't sound a word of judgment or exclusion or some kind of conditional relationship. He emphasizes the unity of all things under God. And he makes two points in doing this. He says, first of all, that our idols, all idols are inadequate expressions of, of God. They are unworthy to be ultimately worshipped. That all of the idols in Athens fall short and that this unknown God, that this is the God that we need to keep searching for, keep looking to, this is the God that Paul wants to talk about. And so even you Moltmann, a great Christian theologian, said that, that Godness, godness, cannot be limited, cannot be limited by an idol of stone or wood, cannot be limited by a temple or a creed or an ideology or a church. Our traditions are book of confessions, are all time-bound. And so the first consequences of belief in one God is theological modesty. It is to know that no one has all the truth for all time. It is to acknowledge that we ultimately put our trust in a relationship with the living God, not with what other people say. About God. And the second consequence of Paul's argument with the Athenians is that we have need to have an openness to the truth that other people have encountered. Shirley Guthrie, one of my professors at Columbia Seminary, says that when Christians hear Jesus say, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, that what they hear is that Jesus is the only way of salvation and Christianity is the only true religion. And so, therefore, if you don't follow my interpretation of that, then you might be excluded. And Guthrie suggests that we need to step back and ask, who is this Jesus who says, I am the way? Isn't it the same Jesus who says, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold, and there will be one flock and one shepherd, and I must bring them as well. It's the Jesus who said, who is the friend of sinners, the unbelieving and the different-believing, people who were excluded and rejected by the law-abiding and morally respectable members of the religious establishment, who were disqualified by the religious and theological experts, but in Jesus' mind were the very children of God that he came to seek and and to find. Jesus, the one who said, I am the way, believed that caring for the homeless and the hungry And the sick and the prisoner is a way to encounter God and is more important than conformity to the requirements of some theological orthodoxy. Because the people that were theologically right were getting it wrong. And that's what got Jesus in trouble with them when he called them on that. Now, Does this mean I'm saying that every religion is equally right? That it doesn't matter what you believe? That everything could be equally true? Of course not. The use of religion to inspire hate and violence is evil. Whatever religion that is, does it mean that everybody makes it to heaven in the end? Or, in the reverse, that only certain Christians make it to heaven in the end. You know, the, the elect, people that agree with me. You know, Presbyterians, or maybe in your case it could be the born again, or the Catholic, or the Jehovah's Witnesses, or, or whoever your, your, your category is that's, that's chosen. You know, be honest with you, I get weary of questions like that. I'm not really in that business. I think it's important for us to say that we don't know enough to know how God will judge and how God will love. We don't know. God who, transform, who transcends all human idols, all human creeds and statements of theology this God we do know, this God of creation, this God revealed in Jesus Christ, this God on whom we should never place a limitation of his love or his grace. And so the Christian faith maintains not so much an intellectual truth or a rigid doctrine to defend as much as it invites us to share our confession, to tell our story that God has come into the world with mercy and grace and love and forgiveness, and God wants to reconcile people to, in the world and is already doing that in ways that we can't see. We're called not to convince or argue people into some new sort of thinking, we're called to be engaged with people. Let them touch us. Learn from them. Tell our story. My story. How a 15-year-old brat who picked on people out of his own insecurity was turned around by the grace of Jesus Christ and became someone who started thinking of the needs of others someone who would stop hiding behind what was cool and start being willing to take leadership in the name of Christ. That's just a little sliver of my story. I could go on and you have your own story and whenever we come to our Mars Hill and we will, might even be in our own family, we're called to tell our story, to make our confession And then let God be God. Amen.